wherever you go, where your cell phone can signal exactly where you are, where one glance can reveal exactly who you are. Sometime soon, in an airport, in the lobby of your office, in your bank, a scanner may get a glimpse of your eyes and a computer reveal your identity. For iris recognition technology, you can thank the owner of this face. They have a picture of a face here with the eyes, the guy that invented this technology. Uh, he's wearing specially made contact lenses imprinted with digital maps of his own irises. His creation is just one of the technologies revolutionizing public surveillance. Then it shows a picture here of a 10-story radar tower built in 1979, which is still there to detect incoming missiles, but it's obsolete compared to the stuff they have now. It says Paul Moskowitz would just love it if the frenetic, ever-tinkering scientist supporting his counter-terrorism squad at Brookhaven National Laboratory bounded into his office one day and announced that they had come up with something half as good as a dog's nose. That is such an exquisite instrument, he offers in a sandy voice tinged with humility. A trained dog can reliably detect the slightest trace of a specific chemical, sometimes from a distance of many feet, even if the scent is masked by other pungent odors. Maybe strychnine in a baby's diaper, you know, or something like that, where there's a pungent odor, and yet it can still pick out a small trace of it. For all the technological innovation in the 20th century, Moskowitz says, we don't have anything can, that can touch that yet. That's why they use the dogs. They, they can do that. Under the name of anti-terrorism, the government is funding all kinds of programs to make it easier to know everything you do, everywhere you go, and keep you under surveillance constantly. Police have surveillance cameras trained on the 700,000 commuters who pass through Grand Central Station each day, along with other assorted other high and low-tech detectors looking for conventional explosives, nukes, dirty bombs, chemical weapons, and bioweapons. And then they have hundreds of human detectors there as well, watching with their eyes and other um, surveillance equipment. Against that furry gold standard, the tinkerers tinker late into the proverbial night, trying to speed up the process of discovery. In the post-9-11 landscape, we need dog-nose equivalents for facial recognition and to detect money laundering, encrypted email, bioweapons, and suitcase nukes, and we need them now. And they say evolution's too slow for that. <laughs> I suppose, since there is no such thing. We are hurtling toward constant electronic scrutiny of the enemy and of ourselves. Increasingly, ours is a world of identity checks, surveillance cameras, body scans, fingerprint databases, email sifters, and cell phone interceptors designed to ensure that electronic trails don't grow cold. Add to that the more mundane domestic gadgets, like nanny cams, you can have cameras watching your nanny of your children day and night, wireless heart monitors, swipe in school and workplace IDs, kids just swipe their card to show that they're at school, 
What if you could have a friend swipe that for you? Uh, an easy pass, a tag that attaches to your car windshield and electronically deducts highway tolls from your prepaid account, and you begin to get a whiff of an emerging electronic vigilance, an ever-examined, ever-watched landscape of total surveillance. When posters started appearing last year on London double-deckers reading, Secure Beneath the Watchful Eyes, the Orwellian overtones were so strong that more than a few Londoners mistook the signs for satire. But the posters were real. The United Kingdom has become perhaps the world's most surveilled nation, with more than four million closed-circuit television cameras, including fancy rotating models with wipers to clear the rain. <coughs> First installed in the 60s, the cameras have exposed crimes from littering to mugging to tax evasion. Now they watch for possible terrorist activity. Now here's a story, I'm not going to read it, but there was a fellow who was a, an accomplished swimmer, and he swam in the Olympic pool back and forth, but they have this swimming pool wired with cameras. And the computer is so sophisticated that it can tell all natural swimming motions it can tell unnatural motions in a swimmer, and it is not murky, it's a beautiful, clear picture, and lifeguards are there, and they monitor these cameras. And this one fellow was an accomplished swimmer, uh, professional at it, I guess, but this system is known as the Poseidon. Remember the Poseidon the adventure movie? Uh, at any rate, they didn't pay much attention because this guy was a good swimmer, and something happened, I forget now exactly what it was, but uh, he sank to the bottom. Oh, I know what it was. He was practicing holding his breath underwater as long as he could, and he blacked out. Sank to the bottom of the pool, and one of the lifeguards happened to notice it, dived in, pulled him out, and they saved his life because they had those monitors. Now, normally in a pool like that, people swimming back and forth, He'd have been on the bottom and drowned. So this kind of surveillance can save lives. Incredible, huh? Machines like Poseidon will re redefine how we live. Think of your life before the answering machine, the ATM, and email. Think of your grandparents' lives before the television and the airplane. Think of your great-grandparents' lives before the telephone. All told, the shift will be that substantial. I have to think back to remember life without all of these things. It was only in the late 90s that I began to use email, and now it's almost like I can't live without it, although for the last three or four weeks I haven't had it, and it hasn't been all bad. <clears throat> I've got to get it hooked back up. Machines will recognize our faces and our fingerprints. They will watch out for swimmers in distress, for radioactivity, and germ-laden terrorists, for red-light runners and highway speeders, for diabetics and heart patients. Imagine devices that monitor the breathing at rhythm of infants in cribs, watch toddlers at daycare, and track children as they go to and from school. They can keep an eye on our home, uh, our supply of orange juice, and let us know when the milk is sour. Machines might watch our calorie intake and burn off. Monitor air quality in our homes and look out for mice and bugs. 
There's one girl here that mentioned a mouse today. Maybe she'll get one of these. Envision sensors as large as walls and as small as molecules in your bloodstream sending quiet signals to nearby computers which will process and relay information to you. To your doctor, your lawyer, your grocer, your building manager, your car mechanic, your local fire or police department. In your bloodstream, it sends messages to all these people. As time and technology march on, less and less will escape the attention of sophisticated machines. They got a tip that there was radioactivity on a ship coming into New York Harbor in, the, in these cargo containers. 19,000 of those come into our country every day. And they got a tip that there was radioactivity on one of those ships. And it took a lot of time. They stopped the ship, pulled it back outside the harbor, went over it tooth and toenail and couldn't find anything radioactive. And then they finally found a pile of ceramic tiles that had some radioactivity there. Now, how much money and how many people and how much technology did it take to discover ceramic tiles? See, there are false positives that are driving these people nuts because they have to look for things and they think they find something and how much time and technology does it take? It's like my son getting stopped in Lubbock, Texas one time. Uh, he had the radio on and I was asleep in the back of the truck and he didn't see what was going on. So the cop finally pulled up beside him and uh, visually told him to stop. Oh, he woke up then. He didn't hear the siren, didn't see the lights. Maybe he was asleep too, I don't know. But at any rate, he got him stopped and he thought he must have been on drugs because he couldn't see what was going on, so he decided that we were drug dealers. So we all had to get out of the car and we all had to sit down with our hands behind us. And uh, I was in a good mood by then because I'd been asleep. But to make a longer story shorter, by the time they were done, we had seven cars there, ABC TV camera for the local news that night, a dog team, because they thought he might have drugs there. They searched the pickup, they searched everything in it. They had my son back in a patrol car, ready to take him to jail if they found anything. Of course, they found nothing. And uh, I made the captain of the highway patrol make that sheriff's deputy apologize for what it was worth. But the ABC guy was standing there wanting a story. And I said, if you really want a story, they're not going to find any drugs, but if you really want a story, why don't you calculate the money and the time that it's taking with seven cars and a seeing eye dog, not seeing eye dog, drug dog, to search us and keep us there for two hours. I imagine the bill was considerable, but how often does that go on? So there's an upside and a downside in a way. Uh, yeah, they can find a lot of things, but then they spend a lot of time and effort on things that they don't find, and they, they made a big point of that here. Now here's a picture which some of you here can see, and some of you might not, but it's a picture of a truck load of bananas. And inside this truckload, under all the bananas and in deep inside the truck, there are boxes. 
and there are people sitting in those boxes. And these people apparently have no clothes on. You can tell the boys from the girls quite readily. Uh, because they have cameras as these trucks go down the highway that can see inside the truck through all the bananas and see through the clothes and see the people. It's entitled, No Place to Hide. They can do that with your car as well. It may not be the kind that sees gamma rays, but a surveillance tool may one day reside in every pocket. Now, currently, in Europe and Asia, a number of countries are introducing a citizen smart card. They don't call it a dumb citizen card, but a smart card. That's more appealing, isn't it? That would serve as an official national ID. It could hold personal medical history, social security information, and serve as a passport, train pass, toll card, credit and debit card, long-distance phone card, and library card, a one-card wallet. That card could tap into systems that talk to each other, merging the worlds of consumer convenience and citizen surveillance. Your email will know your cell phone, will know your shopping list, will know your online pharmacy, will know your UPS account, all of it potentially available to marketers or hackers, and just one search warrant away from government inspection. They have a new commercial software tool called CopLink. You can imagine what that does. It links all cop surveillance equipment together. In totalitarian regimes that don't recognize citizens' rights to privacy to begin with, this sort of all-seeing, all-knowing surveillance obviously threatens to become the terrifying realization of George Orwell's Big Brother. But what Orwell did not prophesy in his novel 1984 was just how pervasive surveillance would be in free societies introduced not by despots, but in the name of liberty, safety, and security. In Great Britain, they now have a camera up for every 15 people. That's a lot of cameras. It says that someone who visits London will probably be captured on camera an average of 300 times in one day. I was recently in London, spent the better part of the day there getting from Heathrow by bus to, um, can't think of the other airport, doesn't matter. Uh, I wonder how many times I had my mug shot taken. It's all, you know, both airports, the bus lines, everything. Probably dozens, if not a hundred or two times, I was uh, had my picture taken that day. It's a little more real to you when you've been there and had your picture taken. Uh, in Schiphol Airport, they now have, that's in Amsterdam, and I go there too sometimes, uh, they have a, an iris scanner already in place where if you're a frequent traveler, you can have them take a picture of your iris and you don't have to stand in these customs lines. You just go right on through. Uh, here in England, something the United States put up, a 560-acre complex of satellite dishes in Minwith Hill, England, run by the United States National Security Agency, may be the largest surveillance station in the world. What's unclear is the station's connection with a program known as Echelon, which can intercept and analyze telephone and computer transmissions from around the globe. NASA, or NSA, is quiet on the matter. 
But outside experts say the agency's supercomputers scan millions of ordinary phone calls and emails an hour. Millions an hour. They are connected into the Internet in such a way that they can tap into any email they desire to, or any phone call they desire to. In the 18th century, jurist Jeremy Bentham imagined an ominous structure called a panopticon. It's from Greek meaning all-seeing. Britain's modern twist is the voluntary panopticon, where citizens seem only too pleased to be watched over. What was originally proposed as perhaps the ideal weapon of coercion is now being sought as a shield to protect free society from itself. Public video systems are now proliferating in Melbourne, Sydney, Vienna, Berlin, Brussels, Dublin, Baltimore, Palm Springs, and scores of other cities, small and large. So it's happening here as well. They just mentioned two. They watch everything that goes on in Jerusalem. Police in Monaco have so saturated their streets with cameras as to make them confident that virtually all future street crime will be recorded. You cannot do anything in Monaco without being seen. Three quarters of major U.S. firms now acknowledge that they monitor employees' email, web browsing, phone calls, or computer files. And while few workers would claim to be openly pleased about the proliferation of workplace surveillance, the vast majority are clearly putting up with it. Well, I don't want to read all of this, but it says, well, here's a picture of a building, and you can see a person here with their skeleton showing. They don't show the skin. Well, they show the skin, I guess, but you can see through it and see the skeleton like an x-ray uh, of everyone that the camera reaches. It says they're not just watching bad guys. Sometimes it's obvious when you're being watched, and sometimes it's impossible to tell. Take it as a given, though, that you're monitored more than you've ever been before, whether it's video cameras on city streets or marketers analyzing purchase patterns our increasingly wired and wireless world is stripping us of the protected cloaks of anonymity and privacy, even as it arguably increases our security and convenience. The decades ahead will surely make the monitoring of our daily activities seem routine, but in the meantime, we'd better get used to the increased exposure. Your home may be your castle, but its moat is not very wide. Anyone Anyone with enough know-how and motivation can listen to your conversations on your cordless phone and read your online activity like a wide-open book. The latter is certainly the greater intrusion, but that Internet connection is like any other window. It gives you an eye on the rest of the world, even as it makes you vulnerable to being seen by others. Want to stay invisible and maximize your privacy? Make sure your home computers are protected from outside intrusion and certainly don't get in line for one of those refrigerators still in development that will automatically inventory and reorder your groceries. It's just inviting them in. People expect less privacy on the phone these days simply because they have so many more of their conversations in public within earshot of strangers. You know, cell phones, people walk around talking all the time. 
You might not realize, however, that eavesdroppers can illegally pick up wireless laptop and PDA communications. You might also not realize that computerized automobile systems with GPS and cellular communication can do more than call for help after a breakdown or call up a map when the driver is lost. That information, everywhere a vehicle goes and when and how fast, is potentially open to insurers, marketers, and law enforcement. Shows a guy's house here, and he was growing marijuana plants, so they just took a picture of the house, and the hot spots where the lights were showed that. Here's a girl trying on clothes, and there are cameras there that tell her how it looks front and behind and suggest accessories to buy with that dress. Says here's looking at me. Then it talks about the Olympics in Salt Lake and how incredible the surveillance was. At any time, they could see everything basically going on in that city around all the public buildings as well as the stadium. Makes you feel a little funny, doesn't it, to read all that? But it's done in the name of protecting us. And to most people, it is acceptable. Now, what about this? Let's tie it in with the system we have around us and see <coughs> how it originates, what its source is, and to what end it will be used. Herbert Armstrong said many times, that every weapon that man has ever devised, he used. That includes nuclear weapons today. So whatever might be there for our protection and to help us can also be used in ways against us. The technology is simply there. It can be used however someone wants to use it. Where does this go back to? Where did this surveillance start? Remember the scripture that says Satan's servants are transformed as servants of light? It says ministers in the old King James, which indicates maybe Protestant preachers. But the word really in the Greek is servants. Satan's servants could cover a wide panoply of different people, not necessarily just preachers. Let's go to Revelation 12, verse 10. Revelation 12, verse 10. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Who is the present ruler of this age? Who influences mankind more than anyone else? And who knows what's going on on this earth that might be evil? Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Satan has access to God's throne. He has a system of some kind which knows our sins. He has a way to perform surveillance of your life in such a way that he knows what your sins are, when you commit them, how you go about it, and takes them to God's throne to accuse you. 
Now that's a pretty sophisticated system, isn't it? So far. First Peter five. First Peter five. I'll start in verse 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yes, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. We're going to hear a lot about that, I think, in the next months. The difference between pride and humility. Because God, in all the prophecies, tells us to be humble, to be meek, and that he resists the proud. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. All of our troubles, all our worries, we're to cast on him. As a society, we have been trained to cast all our troubles, all our needs, on humans. We have been trained by the society to cast our care upon the policemen, upon the soldiers, upon the doctors, upon anyone in the society that might help us in whatever way, we think. We've been trained to trust the government. A lot of people are waking up, but we've been trained that way. We're trained that way in school. He says to cast all our care on him because he cares for us. These people out in the world don't care for us. And Satan may appear as a servant of light, but his object is to destroy us. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be aware. Be thoughtful. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Satan is trying to destroy us. And he's like a roaring lion, ready to tear, ready to kill anyone he can kill. Whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. All around the world, our brethren have this problem. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect or mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. We're going to suffer for a while, and then he is going to establish and strengthen us. We need to understand that. Satan is going about trying to kill us, but God says that after we suffer, we're going to be established and strengthened and have peace. Sounds like some of the prophecies we read in the last few years, doesn't it? written right here in Peter. Let's go back to, well, while we're here, let's go to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. <clears throat> Verse 11. <clears throat> Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We might think we're wrestling against flesh and blood. And you read an article like this today, and flesh and blood is certainly finding out everything about our lives. But the real problem 
is we're wrestling against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Demons and high-ranking demons are after us. Now, just as this National Geographic article pointed out, they can pierce our homes, they can pierce our bodies. I didn't read that, but when you go through uh, airports now, they have the capacity to do the same thing as I mentioned in the automobile. They strip search you by camera, and there's someone sitting behind the camera, and they can see every detail of your body. Now, this is the only thing so far that has caused a great deal of furor from the citizenry. So what they're trying to do now is develop a machine that will blur your body details but still show if you have something dangerous on you. So that they can get you to shut up, and yet they can still tell what's going on. Wherefore, take to you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Pray for yourself, pray for each other, it says. And for me, Paul says, that utterance may give be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Satan would love, through demon activity directly, or through people whom he controls who are developing technological advances, which can detect and pierce your armor, he is trying to kill you, trying to destroy you as a Christian. And he will use every means he possibly can to do it. What is our protection? Closeness to God. That we might be accounted worthy to escape these things that they are dreaming up for us. But Satan is using every device that can be developed to try to destroy us, to try to discourage us, to try to ruin us. <coughs> The, the armor of God blocks Satan's influence. It blocks his ability to penetrate us. That's why all of these parts of armor are mentioned. Because now they can pierce our bodies, our homes, our cars. They can know everywhere we are. Now those of us who are out here away from towns now are in better shape in that sense. But there have already been several people who have seen cars, U.S. government plates, watching our people come in and out of the bank, watching our people and taking their license plate numbers. It was reported to me that even at the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the same car 
with U.S. government plates writing down license numbers in our parking lot at the beach. Why? We haven't done anything wrong. We haven't broken the laws. We believe in God. We keep the Sabbath. Already, we are apparently under surveillance. That curdle your blood? Does it come as a surprise? No, we've read these scriptures for years, haven't we? We've known, eventually, there would be trouble. Now, I don't know that any trouble will come from this. Maybe they're just curious what we're doing and why we're here and what's going on. We're just trying to worship God in peace. That's all we're trying to do. How will that be interpreted? How will Satan interpret that? He doesn't want anyone to worship God in peace, does he? And he is the ruler of this present world. He is the ruler of Babylon. Let's go to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. This is curiously written. <clears throat> it's always been kind of a puzzle to me in a way. Uh, and in a way, not. But I think we can understand it probably better now than we have before. Mr. Armstrong read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 fairly often uh, about the ruler of this world. Let's pick it up. It's talking about Jacob in verse 1, but let's pick it up in verse 4. But you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. Interestingly, we have tied the present-day Babylon to its leader, America, and it's talking about Jacob here, isn't it? That's the context in speaking of Babylon. How has the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased? The eternal has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. This is a prophecy for the future. The Babylon is going to fall. And, of course, we've read that in Revelation 18. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. He has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. So the present rulers of Babylon, whoever they are, are going to be destroyed. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke... He that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted, and none hinders. Now, so far, this is talking about, it would seem, the physical rulers of Babylon, right? The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They bring, break forth into singing. Uh, yes, the fir trees rejoice at you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid down, no feller has come against us. Once Babylon is destroyed, the earth is going to finally have rest. Meantime, though, there's trouble. Verse 9, Hell from beneath is moved for you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. God is going to bring the world into judgment. All they shall speak and say to you, Are you also become weak as we? Are you become like to us? Now, who's he eventually talking to here? He's talking about a time of resurrection of a lot of people who died, and they'll look at the leader of Babylon and say, what happened to you? Let's read on. Your pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of your vials, your music, 
is brought down. The worm is spread under you, and the worms cover you. How are you fallen from heaven, O Hillel, son of the morning? Lucifer is an unfortunate translation there, because this is not the light bringer. The word in Hebrew is Hillel, which is very close to Hillel, who changed the calendar. That is the name of Satan the devil, Hillel. How are you cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? So he goes from talking about the physical leaders to the one who is really behind them all. The one who actually is ruling this world and ruling Babylon, which is today presiding over Jacob. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north, God's throne being in the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will be the most high. Not like, but the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to the grave, to the sides of the pit. They that see you shall narrowly look upon you and consider you, saying, Is this the man or the being that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? Satan is going to be behind the beginning of the destruction of the populace of this earth. And there are people today who are proclaiming 90% of the population of the earth has to die in order for the planet to survive. The one that made the world is a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. When you understand that these New World Order people want to decimate the population of the earth, it makes these scriptures begin to come alive that we read years ago and didn't understand what it meant. That reminds me, I happened to catch on this trip back east one night in the motel. I was flipping through looking for the news. And it happened on this channel, I don't remember what night it was, and I don't even remember which channel it was, but there were Bob Dole and Bill Clinton on the stage. And I thought, that's a strange bedfellows, Republican and a Democrat, on the same stage. And it was in Washington, D.C. It was a very palatial-looking setting. And I don't know what it cost for all those bottoms to be in all of those seats in that particular auditorium, but it probably cost quite a bit to get in there, I would, I would imagine. <clears throat> but here were... Bill and Bob exchanging pleasantries with one another and making jokes about each other in a very friendly and camaraderie type of setting. And I almost surfed on, because I don't particularly care for either one of them, but I thought, what is this about? About then, Bill sits down and Clinton makes a joke or two about his Viagra and it's, it's just a real kind of close, intimate thing between these two men in front of all these people and the nationwide television audience. But then Bill said, before I sit down, I want to give you my view of the world. He said, most Americans have lost a world view, meaning that most Americans only think about their job, their children, their money, their car. We don't think about anything beyond ourselves, basically. So he said, I want to give you my worldview. And he said, I want to take two or three minutes. Now, he is a leading Democrat, right? He then proceeded to quote a leading Republican. Strange. He said, George Bush Sr. spoke of a new world order. I've reminded you of that several times, that he was the first one to come right out of the open about the new world order and the thousand points of light. You remember the Illuminati, the enlightened ones? 
Bill said, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but he said, I agree with this. We have a world that has difficulties, but we've been making progress, and the progress has come through globalism. And we need to break down the borders and become one world. He's saying there, America needs to have its borders taken away. That is his worldview. He thinks that if we have one world government under the United Nations, he says the United Nations needs to be empowered to have more strength than it has been given to this point. He's for world court. He's for a world government. One world. When I fly on American Airlines, it says the One World Alliance. That's what they advertise. Bringing all peoples together under one leader. Who is the leader of this world? Satan the devil. And he is influencing these people. Now this telephone call may now be intercepted from Bethesda, Maryland, or wherever that facility is, or the one we just mentioned in England, because I mentioned government and Republicans and Democrats and Bill Clinton and Bob Doe. Those are the key words, some of them, that they look for. If I say terrorist, the computer will snap it up. That's how we are being monitored. The whole nation, but including, very possibly, this very phone call. Speaking of Satan here, verse 17, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof. The one world people want to decimate the population of the earth to save their god, Mother Gaia, the earth. That open not the house of his prisoners. All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, everyone in his own house, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch. And as the raiment of those that are slain thrust through with the sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. God says he will cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and son and nephew in verse 22. Verse 25, he says, He will break the Assyrian in his land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. God is going to destroy our nation, and then he's going to break the Assyrian's yoke off of our nation. Interesting that he ties together Babylon and Satan with Jacob and his people. Ties with what we have said earlier. All right, let's go to Ezekiel 28. A parallel scripture to this, but it adds some detail, and I want to read that. Ezekiel 28, the word of the eternal came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. So we got Babylon, and now we got Tyre pulled into the equation. Uh, Tyre may very well be symbolic of modern-day New York, and our other cities for that matter, but New York being the financial uh, capital. And very obviously, Revelation 17 and 18 are talking about 
a financial and economic power, not a religious power. So this is the Prince of Tyre, and we'll see that it has reference to Satan the devil directly, but it also has to do with those whom he governs on this earth and what he does with them. Because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, though you set your heart as the heart of God. This New World Order group of Illuminati and various other secret societies look upon themselves as the rulers of the world. They have the religion known as humanism, in which basically they believe that mankind can solve all problems. That puts you in place of God, who can solve all problems. So when you say, I can solve all problems, you're saying, I have the power of God. That's what you're saying, in essence. Men can do that, and of course, Satan thinks he can do that. Notice this in verse 3. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. I remember Daniel could tell a dream that he had not even heard, and also give the interpretation of that dream that he had not even seen. So here's someone who has powers beyond the powers of Daniel even. There is no secret that they can hide from you. Does that remind you of that article we just read? And how Satan is using these devices to put all mankind under absolute and constant surveillance. That is their goal. With your wisdom, our ability, and with your understanding, you have gotten your riches and have gotten gold and silver into your treasures. So this is speaking of an economic power again, speaking of Tyrus. By your great wisdom and by your traffic have you increased your riches. Now, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, because you have set your heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon you, the terrible of the nations. And they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom, and they shall defile your brightness. They shall bring you down to the pit, and you shall die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Will you yet say before him that slays you, I am God? Will you still claim to be the leaders of the world? But you shall be a man and no God in the hand of them that slays you. Prophecy against Tyre. You shall die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. In other words, the Gentile countries will come against Israel. The circumcised will be killed by the uncircumcised. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Eternal God, You seal up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So the analogy changes a little bit from perhaps the physical rulers of Tyre to Satan himself, who is behind the rulers of the nations and the cities of this world. It sort of seems to go back and forth. Here it speaks directly of Satan. Uh, you seal up the sum, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of your tabrets and of your pipes was prepared in you in the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub that covered and I have set you so, 
He was given great power. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. He was at the seat of real power, wasn't he? You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of your merchandise, they have filled the midst of you with violence, and you have sinned. Trafficking, trading, the monetary system is what Satan is using to control the world today. And what is the seat of the monetary system today? The United States, and particularly New York. Therefore I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. That reminds me of Revelation 12, where it says that he will be cast down and never go, more, go back to the throne of God to accuse the brethren. I will cast you to the ground, down to the earth. I will lay you before kings, that they may behold you. He's going to be totally shamed. You have defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, iniquities, by the iniquity of your traffic, of commerce. God hates the present system of commerce on this earth. It is not of God. It is designed of men. And we are what? Enmeshed in it, are we not? Somehow, we have to break free of Satan's commercial system. I think it will take Almighty God to make that possible. We need to be breaking free in every way we possibly can. But look at the words God has for the commercial system that is in New York. How many have money in the stock market? And how much are we involved in the commerce of this world and its banking system and everything else? God considers it profane. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. Pride caused Satan to become corrupted. That's why we will talk about meekness and humility a great deal. Because pride is what brought Satan down and is what he uses to bring down people. As Job says, he is the king of the children of pride. There is no room in your vocabulary or mine for the word pride. We should not be proud of our children. We should not be proud of ourselves. We should not be proud of our homes or our cars. We should not be proud of our wit or our brains. We should not be proud of anything. We are created beings made to be humble and meek and recognize the power of God and not to set up ourselves above one another and not even to compare ourselves among ourselves for it is not wise because it causes us to be lifted up in pride when we compare ourselves among ourselves. There is no room for competition. There is no room to try to be number one or two instead of last. <clears throat> Verse 18, you have defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your commerce. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of you, it shall devour you, and I will bring you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold you. Money is the world's way of keeping score, isn't it? <clears throat> money is everything to the world. Money and the things money can buy. 
of Satan's system to pull us in, to make us proud of what we have. <coughs> Verse 19, All they that know you among the people shall be astonished at you. You shall be a terror, and never shall you be anymore. Who is the original terrorist? Satan was a terror. He is today a terror. He is the number one terrorist. And he is guiding and leading the other terrorists who walk around on human legs on this earth. They have satanic attitudes. And there's no escaping it. You think you can chase down all the terrorists on this earth? What a laugh. Satan's system can produce terrorists a whole lot faster than you can kill them off. And two of the main ones we've been after for two years, we haven't found yet. How are we doing? We're dealing with a spirit who is the leading terrorist and who rules the world. Therefore, as long as this system is in place, there can be no end to terrorism. We're crazy to think so. Now what I get from this is that Satan knows our sins. He has a surveillance system. He is now using that surveillance system through men so that men can spy on men and find out all our sins. And Satan already has that capacity to take them before God. It kind of chilled my blood reading that article, although I've read other things which give you essentially the same material. This is not some idiot on the Internet, but this is probably one of the most respected magazines in America today, the National Geographic. So it's not talking about a big brother in England or Maryland that somebody dreamed up and wrote on the Internet. These things actually are in place. They are actually being used. kind of scares you to think that man can look at everything you do and that Satan can look at everything you do and can take it to God. Let's spend the rest of this time talking about God. Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5. Here I want verse 21. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the eternal, and he ponders all his goings. God knows everything you do. He watches everything you do, and he ponders all those things that you do. Satan is just a counterfeiter. God sees all our goings. Chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the eternal ponders the hearts. We look at our ways and we justify the way that we are and how we think and what we do, but God ponders your heart. He ponders your motivation. He thinks about everything you do. Chapter 24, verse 12. 24.12, if you say, behold, we knew it not, does not he that ponders the heart consider it? 
When you say, I'm innocent, I didn't think that, I didn't mean that, that wasn't my motivation, I didn't know that. God ponders the heart. And he that keeps your soul, does not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? He watches, he thinks, he ponders. Ultimately, he will judge every man's works. Now this should be starting to put a different type of fear down your spine. To fear God is the beginning of wisdom. He says in Isaiah 8, don't fear the new world order, fear me. Have we been placing our fear in the wrong places? It probably scared you a little bit when I read this article about how man can watch you and is watching you and how this telephone call could very easily be monitored. And how Satan sees and reports every sin that you commit to God. But who is the ultimate judge? What you do and what you think will not be judged by Satan. It may be taken to God as an accusation. But the one we're talking about now is the one who is the final judge of everything. Now, I don't want to use fear religion in the wrong way, but the right kind of fear of God is very, very important. That's the beginning of wisdom and understanding. Job 21. Job 21. Let's see, where do I want... Oh, I won't check it back. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Job 21, 22. Shall any teach God knowledge? Is there anyone here who could teach God something? Show him something he doesn't know? Seeing he judges those that are high. Anybody in any position of prominence or authority in this world, God judges. One dies in his full strength, being holy at ease and quiet. His breasts are full of milk and his bones are moistened with marrow. And another dies in the bitterness of his soul and never eats with pleasure. They shall lie down alike in the dust, and the worm shall cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts, this is God speaking, and the devices which you wrongfully imagine against me. Job speaking, God's thoughts. Psalm 94. Psalm 94. Here I want uh, verse 11. Psalm 94.11, The Eternal knows the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, or punish, O Eternal, and teach him out of your law. That's what he's doing to the church right now. But the point I wanted to really make here is that God knows the thoughts of man. Not just your sins or your action. God knows your very thoughts. He reads your mind. And our minds, those whom he is working with and through, he certainly pays attention to. God monitors your thoughts day in and day out, day and night. You know, what's on the screen? Sometimes we let our minds wander. Sometimes we get our minds in wrong attitudes, bitterness, 
hatred, malice, jealousy, uh, any of the works of the flesh, we let go through our minds. But God is monitoring those minds all the time, monitoring those thoughts. Matthew 9, verse 4. Matthew 9. Let's see, here I want uh, verse 4, isn't it? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think you evil in your hearts? As a human living on this earth, Jesus Christ could read those people's minds. He has far more power than any of these surveillance techniques that people are using today, the man is using. I mean, they can take pictures of me going through London, but they cannot read what I'm thinking. Now, you sometimes can read your kids' minds pretty well just by the look on their face. And a lot of times you can read through people's body language uh, and tone of voice and so on what they're really thinking. But it's hard to know what someone's really thinking, isn't it? You can say one thing to somebody, but that's not what you're thinking at all. Well, I mean, you have to think it in a way to say it, but you may not be telling them what you really think about them. You may be telling them one thing and thinking something entirely different. And God can sort all that out. He knows what you were thinking, and he ponders your mind. Nothing is hid from God. The Pharisees could hide nothing from Christ. He could read their thoughts. Let's go to Hebrews 4. Uh, let's see here. Let's take verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. Now we saw a picture here of a truck full of bananas with people in boxes hidden inside. And you could see through their clothes and see their bodies. Man can do that. But the Word of God can pierce soul and spirit, the joints, the marrow, the very inner bones of a human being. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Christ is the Word of God, and these are His written words, and you can make all the justifications and excuses for whatever you think and however you think it, but these words can pierce right through to your bone marrow, to the very heart of your being, to the depths of your mind. Neither is there any creation that is not manifest in His sight. But all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees it all. He knows it all. There is nothing that escapes him. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, you talk about total surveillance, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. 
professional Christians. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. There is nothing you have ever thought or done that Jesus Christ did not think or want to do, yet without sin. He was tempted in all points like as we are. There is nothing you have been tempted to think or do that he was not consciously aware of and his body was crying out to think or do. Now that is quite a surveillance system that he has, that he can discern everything. But he loves us. Satan wants us destroyed. And he has a surveillance system of his own and one that he has set up in the world with people. But he has evil in mind. Notice verse 16. We have a high priest who sees all, knows all, and was tempted just like we are. No difference. There's nothing you have been tempted in that he was not tempted just as strong or stronger. Since we have a high priest like that, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're all sinners and have come short of the glory of God. And we are in a time of need. God is chastening us for our sins right now as a church and as individuals. And I cannot do this for you. No one can do this for you as a human being. We all, individually, have to work on our relationship with God. I can only point you in that direction. I cannot read all your thoughts. I cannot know your real motivations. I cannot know what you are really thinking and what your real attitudes are. I am very limited. And we're not going to have cameras all over this building and all over this property to try to see what you are thinking or doing. I am going to point you to your God and tell you to go boldly to that throne to find help and grace in time of need. You are the only one who can do it. No one can do it for you. Being in a church, a congregation, a splinter group cannot solve any of your problems. You have to go to God. He who sees all, who knows all. There's nothing that you can hide from God, is there? Not when he knows all your thoughts. You can't hide them. So all you can do is what? Work at controlling them and go and find mercy for the times you can't. And he says, come boldly to that throne. Don't come tentatively, but come boldly because he loves us. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you as we read in Ephesians. I had not intended to get into the good side of this quite yet, but it was in this context as well. Let's go back for just a couple more in Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah 16. When I say Jeremiah, you know it can't be too good, can it? Jeremiah 16. <clears throat> Here he's talking 
to his people, to Israel. And he talks about how evil will come. Verse 16, Behold, I will send for many fishers, says the Eternal, and they shall fish them. Speaking of Israel here, that's the context. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from my eyes. God looks down on all Israel, and he looks down on all the church, and no iniquity is hid from his eyes. He sees it all. He knows it all. And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double. Because they have defiled my land, they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. What are we supposed to do? Pray that we be worthy to escape, that we go to our refuge and our fortress, Jesus Christ. As he said in Hebrews, come boldly to the throne of grace that we might have mercy in time of need. Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods to himself, and there are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Eternal. When God is done, there will be no doubt in all Israel in who is sovereign who is in charge. They will know and they will know that they know when God is done. No sin escapes him and he will answer double for it. Amos 9. Amos 9. The context here, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. So, this is speaking of the church here in context. Verse 7, Are you not as children of the Ethiopians to me, O children of Israel? Aren't you just like the Gentiles? Is there any difference between you and the Babylonians and the Egyptians around you? Does not God call Jerusalem, Sodom, and Egypt? Have I not brought you up Israel out of the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaptor and, and Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the eternal God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the eternal. Is Israel, is Jacob going to be taken to a place of safety? Give us a break here. That flies in the face of every prophecy ever written. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All Israel ultimately will be saved, Romans 11:26. But in the meantime, there are going to be some serious problems. Let's go to Psalm 34, verse 15. Psalm 34, verse 15. God sees all the wicked, and he's going to take care of the wicked. And most of the church is going to be punished with the wicked because of Laodiceanism, because of our spiritual pride and thinking that we are okay. We cannot afford to think that way. We must be humble and we must be meek and we must come boldly to the throne of grace. Psalm 34, verse 15. 
The eyes of the Eternal are upon the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. We're going to see some very encouraging things here in the last few minutes of this sermon. He is set against the wicked. He will give them double punishment. And we will be sifted like corn. But if we are righteous, he will hear and deliver us out of all our troubles. Good news. First Peter 3. First Peter 3, verse 12. It says essentially the same thing. For the eyes of the eternal are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. He's watching the righteous. He sees what they're doing. He reads their minds. His word cuts through the marrow of the bones, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the eternal is against them that do evil. That's quoted from Psalms, I think, and is in actually one of our hymns. Let's go to Second Chronicles 16. Second Chronicles 16. Here I want verse 9. First Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the eternal run to and fro throughout the whole earth. God is sitting on his throne in the sides of the north, and his eyes cover the entire earth. You think man's satellite cameras can see a lot? Well, they can. But the eyes of God see the whole earth to show himself. He's doing this for a purpose now. He's going to show himself something to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God is looking for good. He is not looking for evil. Man's surveillance system, Satan's whole surveillance of this world, is for what purpose? To find evil. To find anything to take to God as an accusation against people whom he hates. God's entire surveillance system is for a totally opposite purpose. His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein you have done foolishly, therefore from henceforth you shall have wars, speaking to Asa. God saw what Asa was doing. God was looking for good in Asa, but Asa sinned, and he said, you're going to have war from now on. Aren't we told not to look for the evil, for the hurt, for the wrong, for gossip, for evil in anyone? Aren't we told to look for those things that are good, that are pure, that are right, that are uplifting, that are wholesome, for the good in each other? That's what God does. Is it surprising he would tell us that that's what he does? when he tells us to do the same thing with each other? It's not a surprise at all, is it? Maybe sometimes we think God is just looking for evil in us. You know, a lot of the religions of the world teach that God is going to get you for that. He's looking at everything evil you do, and boy, is he going to blister your hide. No. He's looking to be strong toward those who have the right attitude toward him. He's looking for righteousness. When he comes, when Christ comes, will he find faith? That's what he's looking for. There won't be much. 
But he's going to look for it, and he's going to find it. He's pondering right now, as you and I discuss this. He's pondering our hearts to see if there is faith. That if we'll put our care on him instead of on this world. Why does he tell us to come out of Babylon? He is a jealous God. He wants us to depend upon him for everything. And I suspect, before this is all done, that we will really and truly pray, give us this day our daily bread. Babylon provides our bread today. God may bless us in some respects, but we don't look to God that much in this society. We look to the system of commerce that has been established. We need somehow to break away from that. We need to find ways. And God may take all things away that we lean upon until we have to go directly to him and ask for our daily bread. After this manner, pray you. But he cares for us, doesn't he? Is this a bad thing I'm saying? No, this is a good thing. It would be a good thing if we could depend totally on God for all our needs. And it's going to come to that point in this world when God is going to take away everything Satan has developed and you are going to have to depend upon God. Thankfully, I read something. No, I heard something. Where did I get this information? Recently. Oh, I know what it was. There was a proponent of genetic modification of foods who worked for the biotechnical industry, and there was someone who is against all that, and they were interviewing these two people. And it came out in the interview that right now, today, 70% of all the refined foods on the grocery store shelves in America are genetically modified. But they have had fly or snake or zebra genes introduced into the corn, into the wheat, into the various things that you eat. Virtually everything in the store, not everything, but very close to it, has been refined. And 70% of everything you pick up has not only been refined, it has been genetically modified. And this gal that worked for the biotechnical industry thought that was wonderful, that they'd improve things. Now I ask you, if you've been aware of how mankind, even before all this technical stuff came around, began to transfer animals and birds and different things and plants from other countries or other continents to a different continent, the chaos that that has caused. They brought nutria up from South America to try to control lily pads or something in Louisiana. Now they've taken over. They brought English sparrows over here to control some bug, and now they've pretty well taken over and eat our grains. Everything almost that they bring from one continent to another that they think will solve a problem creates six more. Now they fooled around with all that stuff, and now they start taking the genes out of 
this animal and putting it in this plant, and that won't cause more problems? That which God has created, they are tampering with wholesale. Let's go to Psalm 139, 23. I'm not sure you're ready for this one yet. Psalm 139. This one may cut clear to the quick. Psalm 139, 23. Are we ready for this? The psalmist writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Now we've already read scriptures which show that God knows our thoughts. But here, David is inviting God into his mind, into his thoughts. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready at any moment, day or night, to say, God, search my heart, search my thoughts, consider what I am thinking? That one is scary. There are times I am willing to ask God to search my thoughts and try my heart. There are other times I just assume he'd butt out. That's because my thoughts are not what they ought to be. But we should be to a level of maturity where at any time we could pray, God, search my heart, test my thoughts. That is a goal we can look forward to being able to live up to. We need to do it. Maybe sometimes we're ready to do it. Maybe sometimes we want to be or don't want to be. But we need to be working toward being willing to invite God in at all times. Because what we would find there, or what he would find there, would be something that he was looking for. Looking for goodness. Looking for purity. Looking for a heart and a mind of service and giving and helping and loving. And the fruit of his spirit. All right, let's go to Jeremiah 21. Don't cringe. This one's all right. Jeremiah 29. Verse 11. Well, verse 10, get the context. Context. We read this recently. For thus says the Eternal, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you in causing you to return to this place, speaking of Jerusalem, spiritually his church, physically Israel, once this is all said and done. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Now, we have been chastened by God, but overall, he's going to tell us here what his thoughts are toward us. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expectation. A good end is what it means in the Hebrew. A good expectation. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. Said he hears the prayers of the righteous, didn't he? There's another scripture that says he doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me 
with all your heart. He will turn, and his thoughts will be good and pleasant toward us when we seek him with our whole heart. There are two systems of surveillance in the world today. Satan's system, which is part of man's system, which is evil and trying to destroy us. And the other system is God's righteous system, which reads every thought and ponders every heart, who has nothing but thoughts of good for us. And he tells us to come boldly before his throne to find grace in time of need. Upon whom will we look? Who will we fear? Who will we obey? What system will we buy into? The choice is ours. We could either seek God with our whole heart, or he will turn us over to Satan's system, which also sees what you do. So choose. God can reward us with eternal life. He can reward us with eternal peace, with joyfulness, with happiness, with a kind of existence that it doesn't matter that he can see and read our thoughts. And when we become God, we will have a gift far beyond what we have today. And any one of us in God's kingdom that might be talking to one another, we can absolutely read the thoughts of. But you know, it would not be a problem because all our thoughts will be good. All our thoughts will be pure. I cannot imagine that, but that's what he says it will be. And then when you read your brothers or your sisters or your wife's thoughts, they will all be good. So you have nothing to fear. Now we backtrack and cover ourselves and lie and hem and haul around because our thoughts are not what they ought to be. But then they will be. And utter, total surveillance will not be a problem at all.